Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. So praise the Lord. Uh, I don't know what he's sharing tonight. I don't know what the message is. All I know is I'm excited, so would you please join me in giving a warm living word welcome to Brother Christopher Alam. Thank you, Pastor, for your kind words. I'm vastly overrated. (laughs) Let's all stand up and have a word of prayer, please. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to your presence. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you were whipped and beaten and crucified, you bore upon your own self all of our sins, and you carried all our diseases, and by your stripes we were healed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for total redemption through your precious blood for us, Lord, and So, Lord, this evening I ask you to let your word penetrate our hearts, cause faith to rise up in our hearts, Father. Lord, do your work in our lives, in our hearts, our minds. Heal those that are sick. And, Lord, for everything you do, we covenant to give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise because you alone are worthy. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated once again. Pastor, uh, thank you for having me. It's a great honor for me. Praise God. Uh, I want to start by showing you some pictures from my, uh, you know, the other PowerPoint. Uh, now, keep that, hold that picture. I just want to give you a background. You know, when I've been doing uh, 10 crusades every year in Africa for as long as I can remember, you know, for 35 years, I've been uh, holding crusades and planting churches and just been relentless, you know, nothing has stopped us. We've just gone year after year. And then a few years ago, my wife said, when I was turning 60, and I'm turning 68, can you believe it? How time flies. Uh, I'll be 68 on the 29th. What's the date today, Pastor? 27. So day after tomorrow, I'll be 68. Anyway, uh, I don't feel 68, but you know, when I, when I was uh, a young army officer, I was 18 years old, and I was stationed in an, uh, I was deployed in an infantry battalion. I shared a bunker with my company commander, and he was 26 years old. He was a major, and I remember listening to him. I thought, what a a, a, a deep, uh, uh, how do you say, well of wisdom, you know, 26 years old, and I thought. This man is, has got it all together, and I couldn't wait to be 26 years old myself and, and have that wisdom. And I remember when I turned 26, I thought, looked at myself and said, what an idiot I am, you know? <laughs> and and then, they, then I used to look up at those who were, it was always somebody who was 8 to 10 years older who I thought was a pillar of wisdom. And so the years have gone, and now I'm turning 68, and you you realize with time, the, the longer time goes, how little you really know. Uh, you know, uh, the longer time. Because I remember when I graduated from Rama, I had all the answers. If, uh, if someone died, I could, I, would be there. I could tell you why they died, what they did wrong, and what uh, they should have done uh, uh, to live, you know. And uh, I, I knew everything. But uh, uh, it's, it's ironic, because the more time goes, the more you realize how little you know 
and how dependent you are upon Jesus. And so, so now sometimes people ask me, why did so-and-so die? And my best answer is, you know, I really don't know. Uh, I don't know. And sometimes it's good to be in a place where you don't know everything, but you can always point to Jesus because he always knows everything. Hallelujah. So anyway, uh, I don't want to talk about growing older, but I remember it was, you know, uh, just before I was 60, my wife said, you know, it's time for you to slow down. Uh, I said, what do you mean slow down? She said, you're doing 10 crusades every year. You spend so much time uh, on a plane, uh, and uh, it's not good for you. I said, okay, I promise I'll cut down. By the time I'm 60, I'll cut down, you know, significantly. So I cut down from 10 to 9 crusades. And she says, no, 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 this is not enough. I didn't mean this. I said, okay, I'll cut down one more crusade. So I, I did the next year, I cut down from 10 to 8 crusades. But then God suddenly opened up uh, this door in a country in Asia. And I started doing four crusades there. So I'm now down to... 12 crusades from 10. <laughs> and, and, and I love it because, you know, the thing is that uh, uh, in the Bible, there is no such thing as retirement. Re retirement is, uh, is something that the governments of the world have stipulated at a certain age when people should retire. It's usually in Sweden, I know it's 67. I don't know how much it is in the U.S. around the same year. Social Security will tell you, you know. But, but I tell people that as long as your, your, your mind is still sharp and uh, you can still hear from God and your body is strong and uh, people are still blessed and they still listen to you preach, you know, your church isn't shrinking, that would be a good sign that maybe it's time to hang up your spurs because... People are not, you think you're okay, because a man always thinks, I'm doing okay, but others might not think you're doing okay. You should take that as a sign. But as long as you have it, you got it, you got it, you run with it, you know. So anyway, so this is the country that opened up. I'm not at, is this going over live stream, Pastor? Uh, is this? Okay, so I'm not going to tell where it is. This is in, in Asia, and we are, it's a huge country, and we are in a region where, for example, this first picture, um, as I was on the platform, the speaker of the parliament, who's a believer, was with me. He said, Pastor, only about 1% of this area is Christian. And by Christian, he meant nominal Christians, like Catholics, Lutherans, you know, everybody, uh, and traditional Christians. So uh, we preached, and you see all these people uh, coming there. This is one of our crusades. Let's look at the next picture. This is another one of our crusades, the altar call. And the third one, uh, yet another one. And the fourth one is a yet another one. So th this is uh, what is happening. And what has happened is that as a result of this, the, the Catholics, the Lutherans, and the Baptists have approached us. And they have said to us, they said, we, we like this Pentecostal gospel because uh, people, you know, who are not Christians, they actually come to hear the gospel and they get saved. And can you teach us, teach our pastors about uh, faith, about the Holy Spirit and all that? So uh, they said that, can you hold short-term Bible schools for us, five or six-week Bible schools for us? And so we are going to do that. Then there was a, there's a, um, a Rama Bible training center in, in that region. And, uh, 
and uh, the pastor there is an American. His wife is local, and he's been desperately wanting to open a new campus, but he didn't know where to go. But I told him, we can open a new campus here, and because there's people who want the message of faith, so we're going to do that. Then they have about, I think they have about nine languages they speak in that region, so we are translating Brother Hagen's books, 11 of them, so we're going to do that, and there's a lot of excitement. Then I was going to start a church planting school because when you're in a region with only one to five percent Christian, depending on where you are, you need, you know, there's very few churches. I saw one little Assembly of God church in the entire region. That was it. And so we are going to, we're going to plant churches. And so to do that, you need a church planting school. So we we're going to do all that, and uh, we had the money and all that, but then what happened was COVID came two years ago, and it stopped everything. But now we're going to start again. So we are excited about being able to work in this uh, largely unreached region. And the next picture, see, is a few of the miracles I want to show you. This is our team, and uh, yeah, this is our local team there. The guy on the right, uh, he, he's the American. He's, he's from Oklahoma, so, uh, you know, Oklahoma boy. So he lives there. He actually worked on my team in Africa at one time, and then he moved there, met, met a local girl, and he works there and lives there for the past uh, 16, 17 years. And he's the one, he said, Pastor, why don't you come and start working in this uh, region also? So I began to do that. And uh, let's look at the next picture. Uh, this is a little boy, with 13, 14 years old, born deaf and mute, began to hear and to speak. I mean, we see many, many, many miracles. And uh, so this is just a few of them. And the next one, another little girl born deaf and mute began to hear and speak for the first time in her life. Thank you for your enthusiasm. The next picture, please. Uh, next picture is, uh, now this, this was fantastic. This girl is about 20, 21 years old. And you know, they don't have major hospitals in that region. And she had, her kidneys had basically shut down. And you know, when that happens, unless there's a transplant, you're going to die. And so she was dying. Now, I'm not a doctor, but they said that because of this kidney failure, her limbs had swollen up and she had gone practically blind, lost her eyesight. So the family brought her to the crusade as a last resort and the Lord touched her. And in an instant, her sight came back and her limbs went back to normal size. And so she was, uh, she, I mean, she stood, you know, beneath the, right by the platform, weeping. So we called her up and she, she shared her testimony. And the next one is, uh, this is, this is a, a, a little, a little child had never stood nor walked before, walking for the first time in her life. And I have this, and this is very interesting, significant, because right before this picture was taken, um, I was beside, you know, I was beside the platform. They were worshiping, singers were singing, and I was waiting for them to call me up to preach. When suddenly there was a, there was a ping on my phone, and I, it was on WhatsApp. I had a WhatsApp message from Jakarta, in Indonesia, from a pastor friend of mine. He said Reinhard Bonke has just finished his race, and gone home to be with Jesus. Now. Uh, Reinhard, Brother Reinhardt and I were very close. He was my mentor. We go back for like, you know, since 87. He was a huge influence on my life. And uh, one of the most precious things in my life was his influence on me. So what happened, I knew he was unwell. I knew that he had been unwell, but I didn't realize that it was that bad that he would die. I mean, that was totally unexpected. And when 
he said that I felt like somebody punched me in the gut and this grief hit me. You can't even, I can't even describe to you uh, the sorrow that struck me. And at that moment, I didn't want to go and preach. I, I looked at that and, and, and they, at that moment, they said, Pastor, go and preach. I said, no, ask somebody else to preach. And, uh, and I, I can't preach. He said, no, Pastor, you have to preach. There's no one else to preach. So anyway, I got up and preached and I, I was so stricken with grief and I have no recollection of what I preached. But I began to pray for the sick and this was this one, the, one of the first miracles that took place. And, and then the Lord said to me, you see, Reinhardt is gone, and one day you'll also be gone. But Jesus is still alive. And the gospel, and, and the Lord said to me that the message is always greater than the messenger. The gospel message is always greater than the one who preaches it. It's not about people. It's about the message. You know, we often build so much around people, but it's not about people. It is the message, and the message, the gospel message, would must should should always go forth. And we who are in the ministry, we have a responsibility to to preserve the gospel message in its simplest, in its purest form, so that the next generation that preaches the gospel preaches the gospel and not a watered-down gospel or an altered gospel or a whatever seeker-friendly gospel because there's only one gospel. And, and we have a responsibility. Because one of the things that Paul did as an apostle was to maintain the purity of the gospel. That's a part of the apostolic ministry. And that's one thing that Brother Hagin did. He, he took us back to the Bible, you know, back to the Bible, back to Jesus, back to the Holy Ghost. And, and we have to preach that gospel because it is only in that gospel that the power of God is revealed. The power of God is not revealed in the modern day variations of the gospel. It is in that message that we have received. Anyway, the next picture is, uh, now this is, this is interesting because what happened, this woman was brought in a car and she was basically like a vegetable. She was unresponsive. She couldn't see, she couldn't hear, couldn't speak and I mean she was alive and breathing but she was like a vegetable and uh, nobody knew what was wrong with her and been like that for a long time and they brought her in that car and when I begin to pray over the sick suddenly the car door opens and this woman comes out walking and people begin to scream and she comes on the platform and and everyone is shocked and I speak the local language and so I was asking her and she was telling me she said I can see I can hear I can speak I can walk, and, and then there was this guy, you see the man behind her with his hand in the air, he was shouting and screaming, so he was kind of getting on my nerves, I said, who are you? And she, he said, I'm her pastor, I said, oh, okay, okay, because uh, most of the people were not Christians, but he was her pastor, and he was like one of those fundamentalist Baptists, you know, who don't believe in anything, you know, except there's a God somewhere. And, and, uh, and so anyway, so he was excited and talking about, it was amazing, it was a wonderful, you know, it's a wonderful uh, experience to, ex to experience moments like this when God has done something great in people's lives to, to you know, you kind of savor that, you stand there and to, to hear people's stories. Anyway, then the next picture is uh, uh, this, now this young man, it's, this is a form of demon possession. I haven't seen this in America. I've seen maybe twice or thrice in my life. This man, uh, what had happened, his memory, his mind had been completely erased. 
He didn't know his own name. He didn't recognize his family. He couldn't speak, couldn't understand anything. When he would attempt to speak, it was like gibberish would come out of his mouth. His brain was completely erased. And so he was in the crowd, and the Lord touched him. In an instant, he was restored. He, he knew his, his family who had brought him there. He could speak. He was, he was you know, he was intelligent again, so... They brought him up. I had a nice little conversation with him. He was perfectly okay. Uh, And he had been like this for many years. And can you imagine how God totally restores uh, speech, hearing, everything, memory, everything comes back. It's beyond uh, my my understanding, you know. And the next picture is, now, this is a blind woman who receives sight. And, uh, you know, but the reason I put this picture, if you look at the man on the left with the microphone, if you notice, he's a Catholic priest, and the Catholics there love me. And these Catholic priests, you know, they come, and I've had Catholic priests who have said to me, they say, brother, there's so many towns here where the gospel has not been preached. You come, we, people need Jesus. He said, we are doing social work here, but you, he said, you come and preach and start your Pentecostal churches, and we will help you. So we, I have great help from the Catholics, you know. Uh, and uh, Catholics are there helping us. So this is, anyway, this is to give you an idea of what we are doing, and uh, we are going there uh, either at the end of this year or in January we'll be back there doing crusades uh, after a break of two years, you know. So anyway, let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So do, do keep us in prayer because, you know, this is pioneer missions, reaching people who haven't heard before. The gospel must be preached, and uh, you know, people ask me, "Is it safe?" It is always safe where God sends you. You know, so if you're going to get killed, you can get killed at uh, trying to cross the street, your main street. You know, but if you're in the will of God, God will always preserve you and take care of you. Praise God. Let's go to Acts chapter one. I'm going to start from verse number four. Now. These are the last words that the Lord Jesus spoke on this earth. The last words of Jesus. He said, and and being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Lord has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So we know that these were the last words that the Lord Jesus spoke when he was in the earth, on the earth before he ascended to heaven. So anyway, but let's look at this from verse 4. He said he was assembled together with them, and then it says he commanded them. I want you to note that word here. He commanded them. Uh, It was a command that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many uh, days hence. In other words, to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues is a direct command from Jesus. 
It is not offered to us as an option. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit and speak with other tongues is not offered to us as an option by Jesus, but is a, it is a direct command from the Lord that every believer should receive the Holy Ghost. Amen. And he says that, but wait, you know, tarry in Jerusalem. And I know people say, should we tarry? Generally not, but if that's what it takes, if you have to wait for it, do it. But make sure that you get up from your knees baptized with the Holy Ghost. And it's a direct command of Jesus to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And then look at their response. And that what I found really, uh, you know, mind-boggling or baffling for years. It says, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And I remember for years I used to think, what does the... Uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit have to do with the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Uh, where are they coming from? I mean, what is the cause of this reaction? What were they thinking? And I didn't understand this until I began to study some history a few years ago. And, and that's what I want to share with you. And, and here's the historical fact. You see, the, peop the, ch the kingdom of the Israelites were a proud nation. They knew that they were God's people and they had a very unique place. They, were, they had a covenant with God. The law of God was given through Israel. The prophets uh, who God sent, they were all from Israel. And so they had a very unique uh, status, so as to say, you know, when it came to God's dealings with man. And they always had their own kingdom. They had their own laws and uh, you know, and God had a covenant with them. And they were always blessed. Everything, well, you know, God gave them victory and he provided for them and all that. And now what had happened, when Jesus came to the scene, they had lost their kingdom for almost four centuries. They had been without a kingdom for a little bit shy of 400 years. And that is a long time. That is much longer than the United Nations has been uh, you know, an ind independent nation. So they had been without a kingdom or a king for almost 400 years. And over the years, their greatest desire was to get their old kingdom back. And so if you look at that time of history, uh, what had happened was that uh, first came the Babylonians who occupied them. And after the Babylonians left came the Seleucid Greeks. Now, the interesting, about, interesting thing about the Greeks was that the Greeks had such a rich cultural heritage that wherever they went, they used to live, they used to leave uh, a, a, a strong cultural and linguistic footprint behind. To the point that, ju just think, that the first books of the New Testament were written over a century after the Greeks had left. Yet... And, and, uh, and for the Israelites at that time, Aramaic was their home language, which they spoke at home, and Hebrew was their religious language. Yet, when the writers of the New Testament wrote the books of the New Testament, they wrote them in classical Greek. That tells you something about the, the linguistic and cultural 
you know, uh, pattern that the Greeks had left behind. So anyway, so you had the Babylonians, then the Greeks, and after the Greeks came the Romans. And, and the Romans had been there around 70, 80 years, and that's when Jesus came into the scene. Now, the interesting thing is that during these almost four centuries of foreign occupation, there had been numerous uprisings against these occupiers. Uh, you know, strong men had risen up, led uprisings, but all these uprisings had been crushed, except for one man called Judas Maccabeus. He led an uprising against the Greeks, and he had some limited success. He, he established a small Jewish kingdom called the Hasmonean Kingdom. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because if you go to Israel today and you mention the name Judas Maccabeus, he's like a folk hero because he was the only one who had a you know, a somewhat um, a successful uprising. But then the Romans came and they destroyed the Hasmonean kingdom. So when Jesus came, what had happened over, over these four centuries, the Israelites had developed this, they had evolved this mentality of interpreting their understanding of who the Messiah would be, would be like the Messiah would be like a military uh, person, a, a strong man who would who would uh, who would lead an uprising against the Romans and throw the Romans out. So they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for the next Messiah. Incidentally, it also shows us how people in general tend to view and interpret Scripture through the prism of their own experience of their circumstances, and we tend to do that in America, especially around. Uh, Election times. Now, if I'm stepping on your toes, uh, I don't regret it because you got your toes in the wrong place, you know. Uh, because, you know, people are prophesying and, and God said this and then angel came to me and said this and I have this vision that. And pe people all get caught up and they, and they forget that the gifts of the Spirit are not given to the church to use in politics, but they're given to us to serve people, to heal the sick, to you know, to, to, to restore human beings. God is interested in people outside of politics. But we think that our politics are so important that everything rises and falls. Our nation will rise and fall because uh, of, pol uh, of politics. And the guy we, uh, we elect, whether if it's a guy who we like, when he gets elected, he's going to save this nation. But no, no man is going to save this nation. Only Jesus can do it. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, the scripture says. And there's no man who can impart righteousness to, the, to a nation. And no, no legislation can bring righteousness to a nation. Only the gospel can bring righteousness to a nation. Amen. If we want our nation to be saved, we have to preach the gospel. Because if people's hearts are changed, uh, the nation will be changed. Amen. Anyway, anyway, I, I don't want to start, you know, telling you, letting out the secret that I'm running for office. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just making this. Okay, don't take this seriously. But my point is that they had this mentality. The Jews had this mentality which has, had evolved through 400 years of occupation that the Messiah would be some kind of military person, you know, who would lead an uprising and he'd get rid of the Romans. So they were looking for a Messiah and into this scene comes Jesus. 
And the interesting thing about Jesus was there were two very unique things about him. The first thing was that he spoke at no man has, as, as no man had ever spoken before. Remember once they sent the soldiers to, the Pharisees sent soldiers to arrest him. And the soldiers came back empty handed. And they said, why didn't you bring him in? They said, what could we do? Nobody has ever spoken like him. I mean, his words used to grip people's hearts. The second thing about Jesus was that he had the power of God. He had miracles. Wherever he went, the lame walked, the blind saw, dead people were raised, deaf and dumb people were healed. I mean, there were miracles everywhere he went. And so he had the power of God. So, so he had all kinds of people following him. And uh, he had 12 apostles, but there were also other, a lot of other people who followed him around. And, and, and one little group that followed him, they were the zealots. And the zealots were the... Uh, more uh, insurgency-minded people, you know, who wanted to uh, fight the Romans and overthrow him. And one of them was even one of his 12 disciples, Simon the Zealot, if you remember him. So the Zealots were following him around, and, and, you know, some people were following him around because they were spiritually hungry. Others were following him around because they wanted to join in the next uprising. So we had all these people. And finally it culminated in uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, when they tried to make Jesus their king by force. If you remember, they wanted to make him king by force, and, and he showed no inclination, no interest in becoming their king or in leading anything. In fact, if you look at the things that Jesus said during his three and a half years of ministry, it's striking that in spite of all that was happening around him, the way the Romans were treating people, oppressing people, the way they were being taxed, you know. I mean, that's why the people hated the tax collectors. And I mean, all that was happening around him. Jesus never made a single political statement during those three and a half years. He never made a single uh, political statement or anything criticizing the Romans for their corrupt and brutal rule. In fact, he he seemed to be living in another world, you know, and totally oblivious to what was going on. And and he was talking about his father in heaven. He said, teach us to pray. Well, this is how you pray, our Father which art in heaven. It was all about heaven and about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. It was all about, you know, heaven, the kingdom of God. And if someone takes your shirt, give him your coat also. He wants you to walk a mile, go two miles with him. And, you know, he taught, he taught the exact opposite of what people wanted. And, and he never addressed their hot potato issues that they wanted to discuss. The only time he even came close to making a political statement was when they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? This was a big issue. So he said, give me a coin, took that coin. He said, whose picture is on this coin? Caesar. He said, okay, fine, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And that was, and then you can imagine, I can imagine the growing frustration in these people because none of, I mean, they were trying to bait him, trying to, uh, you know, get him started, but he was not even interested. He was in his own world. And then finally, what does he do? He goes and dies upon the cross. And when he dies upon the cross, all their dreams also die with him. But on the third day, he made the, ex- the ultimate comeback. You talk about people making a comeback. Jesus made the ultimate comeback. He came back from the dead. 
And the Bible says after he arose, he said, you know, they gathered together again, and I believe their dreams are also resurrected. They wanted, they still wanted, couldn't let go of their dream of getting that old nation of Israel back. And they followed him around for 40 days. And the Bible tells us during those 40 days, he talked about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And now is the last day. And he calls them together. He said, okay, guys, let's get together. I want to tell you one more thing. And this is what he said. He says, listen, don't go anywhere, but wait in Jerusalem until you receive that which the Father has promised that I have told you about. He says, John baptized you with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And they said, maybe he got it now. Is that when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he dashed their hopes to the ground for the last time when he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has said, but listen, the Holy Ghost is going to come. Let us pause here for a while and let us follow the timeline of history. After that, because Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven. Day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost came. And, uh, but you know, if you look at life in Israel after that, life continued as before. The Romans were still there. They were still killing people. They were still taxing people. In that way, nothing really changed. But in the year 70 AD, which is about 35 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, the Jews had one last uprising. And by this time, the Romans had enough of the Jews and their uprising, uprisings. And so they sent their general called Titus, who was known for his exceptional brutality. Titus came marching from Rome with his legions and he set about killing as many Jews as he could find and destroying their cities and he killed thousands of people. He destroyed their cities including Jerusalem and the big temple. I mean he reduced the city of Jerusalem to rubble and he did made such an exceptional job of this destruction that even today 2,000 years later if you go to Jerusalem you'll see in places archaeologists digging you know, digging away, trying to look for the buildings that are mentioned in, in the Bible. I mean, he, and the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth, and, and uh, they were gone. And it's only, you know, 1948 that they began to come back, and Israel got its own nation again. But it's like a secular democracy, and only two of the 12 tribes came back, and, and they don't practice the the law of the Torah there. They don't have their temple, you know, so it's not that complete thing. But I don't want to talk about the end times, but the fact is that uh, after the church is gone, the Jews, I call the Jews the people of the end times because they'll be the witness for the gospel in the end times. But what we have now, what happened was that, you see, one thing that the disciples couldn't see, why Jesus was saying what he was saying, why he was not interested in restoring their kingdom. Because that old kingdom of Israel, it benefited only the Jewish people. But this new kingdom that Jesus was going to set up, it was for all mankind. So whether you are, uh, you know, Jew or Gentile or, uh, or Chinese or, 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 you know, or 
whatever the color of a person's skin or whatever his ethnicity may be, suddenly everybody can have a covenant with God. There is place at the table for everybody. And Colossians says that we who were far, we have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Amen. But they couldn't see that. You see, they couldn't see God's master plan. God's master plan was to, was to start a new kingdom, was to build a new kingdom. And that new kingdom would encompass and it would integrate everybody, bring everyone together as one. And God would make a covenant with all people and this would have nothing to do with them being uh, how do you say biological descendants of Abraham but anyway the thing is that that was God's master plan and but they couldn't see it all they wanted was their old status quo they wanted their kingdom back but out of this rubble of history rose the church on the day of Pentecost the church was was born and it took a few years you know when the church began to grow church began to expand and today we are at the place when I can say that the church is really the mightiest nation on this earth I want you to think of it that we don't have national boundaries we don't have a flag we don't have elections thank God for that and we we you know we don't have an army navy or an air force we don't have a seat in the United Nations but wherever the gospel goes forth in whatever nation when people hear about Jesus and their hearts are gripped and they give their lives to Jesus something amazing happens that their allegiance to this man Jesus of Nazareth is stronger than their allegiance to the flag of the nation in which they were born so people say I'm a Christian first before I'm an American or whatever else and that that's the the hold that Jesus has on the hearts of men is so powerful that is why if there's anything that the tyrants and the despots of this world do not like it is the onslaught of the gospel because wherever the gospel goes forth there is freedom there's liberty people are set forth and they lose their control and but the amazing thing about the church is that the more you try to oppress it the more you try to persecute the church the stronger the church gets the worst thing that in you that you can do to the church becomes the best thing for it the church thrives under pressure you know but you know what can kill and destroy the church political power and money thank god nobody has found this out as yet Give the church money and power and it will be corrupted. But as long as you persecute the church, the church will be stronger. So anyway, that was God's plan. But now let us go back. Let's go back to that day. Jesus says, the Holy Ghost shall come. Now, the Holy Ghost is going to come. And that was a thought that was so foreign to the Jews. Because the Jews, for them, God was such a holy and distant figure that... Uh, it was inconceivable that uh, people could have any kind of closeness or relationship with the Holy with God, you know, because, I mean, they, they were not, not even allowed to mention his name, speak out his name. Uh, God was so distant and holy. Yet Jesus is now saying the Holy Ghost is going to come. Uh, now, who is this Holy Ghost? Uh, the Holy Ghost, as, you know, we all know, the uh, the Holy Ghost is one of the three persons of the Trinity, 
There is only one God, but he has revealed himself as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And uh, the Father, this is how people think. People think that the Father is this old man with a big white beard, with a bad haircut, long hair. He's in heaven with a permanent frown on his forehead developed over centuries of looking at humanity and looking at our fault and he's constantly angry at us and we some of our most famous sermons are like sinners in the hands of an angry God you know so there's an angry God up there he's really really mad at us and 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 he looks at us and he sometimes shakes his head why did I ever create this lot you know and then we have Jesus now Jesus we like He's a nice guy. You know, we have songs, how much he loves us. He loves the little children. You know, he's just, Jesus is just wonderful. He, him we can identify with. You know, Jesus, he walked here, healed the sick, and no matter how bad people were, he was always good. He was never angry, you know, and so he was nice, you know. Then we have the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost is this uh, thing. <laughs> Often people refer to the Holy Ghost as an it, Right? Sometimes he shows up in church. And when he shows up and people go, oh, glory. Oh, yeah, I feel this thing. You know, see, see this? This is the Holy Ghost right here. And you go, oh, glory, I feel it. Do you feel it? Yeah, I feel it too. Oh, glory. And then we say the Holy Ghost is here. And then, and then that can be accompanied by people falling. And in our circles, this is laughing. That's a big thing, you know. People laugh or they do this special dance when they turn around in circles and, you know, music playing. And we call that. Let me say, we had a move of the Holy Spirit. And so I hope it comes back in the next service. I really enjoy it. I love it when the Holy Ghost shows up. But, but you see, see, you got to understand, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, firstly, it's not that the Father is a senior partner and Jesus is the junior partner, and the Holy Ghost is their sidekick. No. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal. They are God. The Holy Ghost is as much God as the Father and the Son. And that's why when we talk about the Holy Ghost, we talk about Jesus, we talk about, we should approach them with reverence. I know he loves us. Jesus is our older brother. But it's very important that we don't develop this, uh, this uh, kind of wrong kind of familiarity that we treat them, you know, Jesus is my buddy. He's not my buddy. He's not my buddy. He is my Lord. He is my God. He created me. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? So we, we have to... We have to uh, remember, although we love him and he loves us and, and all that, and all that is in the Bible, but let us never forget that element of reverence. We should never lose that reverence for God because he's God and that he is holy. God is holy. Amen. Just because he gives us grace, it doesn't mean that he's okay with whatever we do in our flesh. It's not okay. God is a holy God. He's a good God, but he's a holy God. Amen. So now what Jesus is saying that the third person of the divine trinity is coming to you. But him coming to us is the same as the father and the son because they are one. Jesus said, I will not leave you alone, but I will come back to you. 
And the Holy Ghost will come and he will teach you all things. He will remind you of the things that I have spoken. He shall glorify me. He shall take that which is mine, make it known to you. And he's our comforter. He's our leader. He's our guide. And then he, he comes with these nine wonderful gifts that he, 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 he puts in our lives, enabling us to serve with supernatural power. And he tells us to covet. I mean, the Bible is against covetousness, but he tells us to covet the best gifts. And, and, and you know, and then the fruit of the Holy Spirit, he, want to work, he wants to work in our, life and in, in our lives and, and, and bring forth those fruits in our lives so that our lives reflect the character of Jesus because that's what the fruits of the Holy Spirit are. They are the character of Jesus reflected in us. So God's ultimate desire is for his character and his, his uh, power to be revealed through us. The goal of all that is to uh, conform us to the image of the Son of God, to make us like Jesus. So anyway, that's the whole picture. He says, now when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and here's the thing, the Father is in heaven. Here's the main difference. The Father is in heaven. Jesus is at his right-hand side, but the Holy Ghost is here. So whatever the Father and the Son say or do, they do so through the Holy Spirit. And that is why our personal relationship with the Holy Spirit is of utmost importance. Our personal uh, closeness, our intimacy, our relationship with the Holy Spirit is of utmost importance and an extension of that, uh, the relationship of the church with the Holy Spirit. How much we allow the Holy Spirit to move not only in our lives but also in the church. And, and it's not about experiencing a move of the Holy Spirit in the sense that, you know, people run, run around and shout and, and we think, that's all God wants to do. No, it's about life. You know, he wants to permeate every, every part of our lives. He wants to live in us. He wants, uh, he, he wants his lordship over our lives. That's the move of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living in us every single day, speaking to us, leading us, and guiding us. So Jesus says, when the Holy Ghost shall come, but he shall come upon you. Now, he said that 2,000 years ago, which means that the Holy Ghost is actually here today, and he has been around for 2,000 years. And so the question is, has he come upon you? And if he has come upon you, what is the depth of his influence over your life? Or let's put it this way. How deep is your surrender to the Holy Spirit? And it's not how much of the Holy Spirit I have, but how much of me does the Holy Spirit have? When the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, the first thing that shall happen, he said, you shall receive power. And that word power is the Greek word dynamis, which in today's language could mean brute force, the miracle working power of God. That's the first thing you shall receive when the Holy Ghost shall come. And that same word is used in Mark 5 when the woman with the issue of blood came and touched Jesus. Remember? And there was something that flowed from him. There was a divine substance that flowed from him to that woman when she touched him. And Jesus said, I felt that virtue flowed from me. And that word virtue 
is the word dynamis. So what Jesus is saying to the disciples is that when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, the same divine substance that flowed from me and healed her, that same divine substance shall flow through you also. Part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that the same miracle working power that flowed from Jesus when that woman with the issue of blood touched him should flow from us. Amen. So if you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have it inside you. So what do you do with it? Well, it will never flow unless you begin to exercise it. You begin to exercise it in your everyday life. And I tell you what, I, I, uh, I, I, I worked an ordinary job. I remember I used to do ministry, uh, but I worked uh, had, at an you know, ordinary job to support myself. And I remember this was 1980, and I, was remember, I remember reading Brother Hagin's books. And Brother Hagin's book basically said that everything that the Bible says about you is true. So I used to read my Bible uh, with that thing in the back of my mind. And I remember reading Mark 16, and it says, and these signs shall follow them that believe. And I thought, oh, I believe, I'm believing. So, so uh, does it mean that these signs shall follow me? And one of the signs was, in my name, you shall lay your hands upon the sick and they shall recover. And you know what I did? I began to look for sick people I could lay hands on. And as I did that, as I actively looked for sick people, people were getting healed. In the beginning, I became an expert on sinuses. If you had a sinus problem, you came to me, you were healed. Then I became very good at people with trouble with their backs. Back. Anyone had back trouble? I was looking for people. And then the third thing was, Crutches were like a magnet to me. Thank God, Sweden isn't a society like America where everybody sues everybody else, you know. So I could be on the streets. I used to walk up to total strangers and yank their crutches. And sometimes people would cuss me out, get mad at them. But I didn't care. I was looking for sick people to pray for. I would pray for people. And, and uh, one day the pa one of the pastors at our church, he was furious because he walked into church with a crutch. He had injured his leg. I yanked his church and began his crutch began to pray for him, but, but that's how I cut my teeth. You've got to be bold. You have to believe that God has deposited something in you if you're baptized with the Holy Ghost and you go out and do something with it. And not just stay with Sunday morning, oh glory, you know, that's the Holy Ghost. Because if that's all you stay with, you'll be doing oh glory the rest of your life. And that's not what you want. That's not all that God has given you. That same power that flowed from Jesus and healed that woman with the issue of blood, that same power, can you believe it? It lives in you. It is right there, if conditional to you being baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you say, I'm not baptized with the Holy Spirit, then I'm sorry, you don't have it. But if you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, it is right there. Are you with me? He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. And then it tells us why we shall receive power. It says, so that you can be my witnesses. That word witness means one 
who can give evidence in court. In other words, somebody who can prove something. We are proof producers. Proof of what? Proof of the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. That he is not dead. He's not a figment of someone's religious imagination. But Jesus is alive. And the first evidence is what he has done in my life. Amen. What Jesus Christ has done in my life, that's the first thing. My own changed life, my testimony. Then after that, miracles. When you lay hands on the, I remember, you know, just before COVID, I, uh, I go to Sweden twice, thrice a year. You know, we got so many friends, relatives there. And I was, my first day, I was walking to the shopping center and I heard a voice, he says, Brother Christopher, and I looked at this guy I, hadn't reckon, I didn't recognize. I said, who are you? He says, I'm Kusro. Then I remembered him. It was like early 80s I, when I used to go uh, to the student housing. We have a big university there. We used to go from door to door witnessing. And he was this guy, and he was so intelligent. He was a Muslim guy from Iran. He was so smart. Ever met somebody who's smarter than you? He talked circles around me. I mean, he, everything I said, he had five arguments. He, so after half an hour, I thought, I must be able to get out of here. You know, I was looking for an exit strategy. How can, uh, how I can leave this place with my pride intact? Because I really, you know, and then I suddenly noticed there was something wrong with him. I said, what's wrong with you? Something with your legs? He said, I can't walk because I have this. He began to describe he was born with something. And the doctors in Sweden, they were operating and doing surgeries, corrective surgeries. And maybe after seven or eight operations, he might be able to walk. I said, oh, that I can fix right now. He said, you can? I said, my Jesus can because he's alive. And, and he had just been talking to me, refuting all my you know, arguments for Jesus. I said, now, if I lay hands on you and Jesus heals you, will you believe in him? He said, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, if he can heal this, of course. So I prayed for him, and God healed him. And I haven't seen this man for all these years, and now he was standing next to me, Brother Christopher, and I said, what are you doing these days? He said, oh, brother, you know, I'm saved, and I'm following Jesus, and he mentioned some church, and he's in the leadership there, and, and his son is also serving God. Just wonderful, wonderful stories, wonderful stories, because he got proof, he got evidence that this Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. Amen. We are proof producers. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, my proof producers. Prove to people that I'm alive. Then it tells us where we shall be proof producers. He said in Jerusalem. That was their hometown. That's where they were. In Judea. Judea was the greater geographical territory where the Jews lived. Then he said in Samaria. Now that's the enemy. People with another religion. Remember when Jesus went to Samaria, the woman said, why are, you, why are you here? Why are you even talking to me? Because your people and my people have nothing to do with one another. We worship on this mountain. You worship in Jerusalem. Who are the Samaritans today? For Americans, you want to know, can I be blunt with you? It's the Muslims. Muslims. Many of us, because we listen to the motor mouths on TV, 
we somehow believe they're all against us. All have a sinister design. But you know, most of them are here because they just wanted to get away from those countries where they are and they like our way of life. But if you exclude them, they will be excluded. So what do you do with the Muslims? Well, first of all, before you do anything with all your prejudices, what you have heard them say, look at me. I was one of them. I did the whole jihad thing. Can you believe it? Huh? I had hand grenades in my house. I was planning stuff. But I'm here preaching Jesus. Why? Because there was an Englishman called Keith Frampton. He went to where I was and he stood on the street and he believed God. He said, God, give me one soul from this Muslim land who will serve you. And I happened to be coming along and he gave me a tract and I got saved and here I stand. 47 years later. Thank God he didn't say, oh, I'm not going to talk to this guy. You don't know. He might want to kill me, you know. You don't know what he's like. Listen, uh, uh, you know, you, you go to the 7-Eleven. You don't have to go far to find them. Go to any convenience store. Some people think they're the 9-11 people. That was in the past. They're the 7-Eleven people now. Go, you, know, you, you know what you should do. Honestly, it's so easy. People say, how do I witness to Muslim? First thing, just be a friend. You know, just be a friend. Uh, you, go to, you go to 7-Eleven and ask the guy, hey, where are you from? And he'll tell you where he's from. And he say, so is your family here? How many children do you have? They love it when you talk about family. Family means a lot to them. He say, you know, I'd like to hear your story. Can we... Get together. Can I take you out for a hamburger or for a cup of coffee so I can talk, get to know you? Right? Invite him to your house and say, or is there anything we can do for you? Our church likes to help people. Is there anything you need? Hello? Simple things. They just want someone to show them kindness. That's all. You don't have to be a theologian and know everything about Islam. Just be a normal Christian. Love people. And another, another way to reach them is if they say, can I pray for you? Oh, they love that. Can I pray for you? Can I come, and, can I come to your house, lay your hands upon your whoever it is that is sick? Can I do that? And then believe God. Believe God that when you lay hands upon them, they'll be healed. Believe God. Don't say, well, what if they don't get healed? That's not faith. We are faith people. Do you know the word of God or not? You can't pray for people anticipating what happens if he doesn't get healed. You can't think that way. Bible says, you shall lay your hands upon the sick and they might recover. They say that? They shall recover. You have to emphasize that shall. And you know, that... Judea and Samaria. And but the thing is that nowadays the world is so small, you don't have to go to Samaria. The Samaritans are here. Amen. You don't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan because the Iraqis and the Afghans are right here. 
And they're everywhere. You live in a little community and say, dear Lord, how did these people find this place? But they are everywhere. Amen. And then he said, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You know, that's the interesting thing. Jesus was a Jew and those disciples were Jews. The Jews have no, you know, the Jews are not like Vladimir Putin or anybody. They want to conquer the whole world and influence the whole world. Jews have never had a design for world domination. If you ask a Jew what he wants, he says, you know, there's a strip of land. It's about 30 miles wide, 60 miles long, by the shores of the Mediterranean. That's all we want. Give us that and leave us alone and we'll all be happy. But Jesus is different. He wants to dominate the whole world. The Bible says that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. The prophet Habakkuk said that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And he says, so we shall be witnesses, witnesses for Jesus to the uttermost parts of the earth. And let me finish by this. You know, I've been to two places that qualify as the uttermost parts of the earth. One was in Irian Jaya in Indonesia. And I remember there's no roads there. It's all jungle. And they told me that the people here walk around naked. They don't wear a stitch of clothing. And, uh, and me, I'd never even seen a nudist beach in Europe, you know. And I'm going to go to a place where people don't wear clothes. And, and he said, then they're cannibals. He said, but you don't have to worry. They only eat white people. I said... Praise God, there's somebody <laughs> who recognizes that brown lives matter. <laughs> they eat white people. They will leave you alone. They don't like, you know. Okay. So I went there, and I remember I was standing there, and I see this guy walking. He's stark naked, right? Wearing nothing but Ray-Ban sunglasses. And a blue New York Yankees baseball cap. And, I, and nothing else. The next person I saw was also stark naked, drinking a Diet Coke. And, and I thought, I said to the pastor who took me there, I said, brother, American culture, Coca-Cola, New York Yankees, Ray-Ban, has reached this place where the gospel hasn't come as yet uttermost parts of the earth. Now, another place, and I'll finish with this, was when, when I was a, I was very small. I don't know whether I was six, seven, or eight, but I was small. And uh, my father was transferred uh, to what is now known as Bangladesh. At that time, it was known as East Pakistan. Mind if I come down here, Pastor? So I was in, we were in East Pakistan, and my dad, he says to me, uh, you know, we used to hunt and shoot when, since the time I was small. We used to shoot birds and rabbits and whatever. And then my dad says, we are going on an elephant hunt. I said, elephant hunt? Are we going to shoot elephants? He said, no, no, you don't shoot elephants. Because a dead elephant is not good to anybody. You can't eat its meat. It's, you know, it's a waste. But he said, what I mean by elephant hunt is that the jungles in Southeast Asia are teeming with wild elephants. And he said, what they do is that they capture these wild elephants. Then they kind of, you have to work on them, and they win them over. And in, in our language, become friends with them. You know, then you train them, you 
you know, they become domesticated. And these elephants do the work of trucks and tractors in places where motor vehicles cannot go. So up in the mountain, they have the logging operations. You know, I've got these teak logs that weigh hundreds of tons and trucks cannot go there. That job is done by elephants. So he said, we're going to see how they capture and train those wild elephants. So we, we, I remember we drove two days through the jungle and then we crossed the border into Burma. That's where the, which is now known as Myanmar. And that's where those elephants were. So two days driving, we went into Myanmar and we saw the whole operation. But I remember when we crossed the border into Burma, I remember distinctly either I heard a voice or I don't know, something said within me that one day you're going to come back here and you're going to do some big things here. And I was just a little Muslim kid. I didn't know what that was. And anyway, 38 years later, 30, yeah, 38 or 40, something like that, I was there. And uh, I went to Myanmar to preach. And I remember when I reached this airport, this voice came back to me and I suddenly remembered. So I knew I was there with a purpose. And we had like an indoor type of meeting and many people were saved, people were healed and after that persecution broke out because the military, Buddhist military dictatorship, they didn't like Christians and they you know, killed Christians, they tortured them, it was very bad. And so this, there was this persecution uh, because of my meeting. So the pastors told me, please wait a year before you come back again. We want you, but wait a year. So I was back after a year. Now, when I came back after a year, um, I remember I was in a meeting and I was praying. And as I was praying, suddenly I saw an open vision. Now an open vision is like this. When you're wide awake, you're not sleeping. And, but you're, uh, like open vision, for example, is I'm wide awake, I can see you, right? You're in front of me. But when I see the open vision, I don't see you. I see what I'm seeing in the vision, and that becomes my reality. You can see me standing here, but I can't see you. I'm just seeing what God is showing me. And, uh, and I had never had, I, know, I knew what an open vision was because Brother Hagen had described it. He used to have them all the time, but for me, that was the first time. And so I had three long open visions in five days. And the Lord was dealing with many things in my personal life, straightening things out in my life where I had been wrong. And that was it. But one of the things the Lord said to me, I want you to come back here to Burma and start holding crusades and planting churches. And I said, Lord, that's a fantastic idea, but I'm not your man. And the Lord said, why? I said, because, you know, Lord, I enjoy my life. You know, I have a wife and three kids. I live in America. Uh, I can go to McDonald's, KFC. I eat what I like. I'm living a good life. And, you know, I'm not a, I, I don't want to be tortured and beaten by these people and killed. And, and there are other preachers who are gluttons for punishment. And they write books about these things. And they like it. Why don't you call on one of them? You know, why pick on me? Then the Lord said, do you remember what you said in the summer of 1977? And I said, Lord, you really have to bring that up. Now what happened, I got saved in 1975. I spent almost the entire year of 76 in prison for preaching the gospel. 1977, I had to escape because they were going to execute me. So I ended up in Belgium. 
So when I was living in Belgium, I was with an organization called Operation Mobilization. They're like YWAM, but they're kind of different. They, similar organization. So there were 7,000 young people, people my age, I was 22, 23 years old. We, there were 7,000 of us at this conference and our founder, leader, was a man called George Verwer. And George Verwer was an absolute fanatic. I mean, he preached like, if you don't lay down your life for the gospel, you're wasting your life. And he was against this American, he called it the American cult of comfort, you know. We are so used to comfortable lives. He says, even if you do missions, you want to do it comfortably. And, and uh, you know, nobody's willing to lay down his life. So he, he I mean, he was, he's, he's about 85 years old and he still hasn't changed, you know. So he was there preaching and boy, he really got me, you know. So I was, I was being brainwashed by George, you know. I said, ah, I've got one life to live. I laid down preaching the gospel. Then I was introduced to him, and he took a personal in, intro, you know, interest in me. And he, a book, he gave me a book called The Calvary Road. And he said, you must read this. And I remember after the first chapter, I just, I, I, I love to read in bed. I went on my knees weeping, and I read the rest of the book weeping. And then I tried to return the book to him two days later, and he said, no, no, keep it. I want you to read it again. I'm going to give you another book. And this, the title was, just the title was Come, Live, and Die. And so, and that was his book. So I read Come, Live, and Die. And by the time I finished Come, Live, and Die, I was ready, sheep for the slaughter. You know, I was primed. And then one evening he gave some kind of altar call. He said, I don't remember exactly. This is like 45 years ago. He said something like, how many of you want to lay down your life for the gospel? You're willing to die and you're willing to go wherever God sends you. And by that time, you know, I was ready to die. I was saying, Lord, send me somewhere where I can die preaching. <laughs> and so stupid as I was, I ran to the front. I ran to the front and I was on my knees weeping and I spoke words I have always regretted. I said, Jesus, send me wherever you want to send me. Send me to the difficult places. Send me where I can get killed preaching the gospel. In fact, if you don't want to use me, kill me. But at that moment, it, feel, it felt good saying those things, you know. It just felt good. I was putting my life on the altar. And then I came to Sweden, got political asylum, got married, had three kids, lived a good life so far, forgotten all that. And now God is saying, do you remember what you said in the summer of 77? And I said, Lord, you know, you know that better than anybody else. You know, when we are young, we say stupid things, <laughs> which we regret. And this was my golden moment of stupidity. I've regretted it many times. And then the Lord said, you hold me to my words, don't you? Can't I hold you to your word? I said, you know, you always win. I said, okay. I said, okay, I will come. But one condition, the Holy Ghost must go with me. Otherwise, I'm not going. But I said, here's the caveat, not the Holy Ghost of the churches back home where people line up and they have catchers behind them and you give them a little nudge, then they do a courtesy fall. <laughs> and if it's a lady, the usher puts a tablecloth on the woman's legs. I said, no, no, not that Holy Ghost. I said, that Holy Ghost is great for America, but it won't do any good here. 
especially where they persecute you and kill you. I said, here, I want the book of Acts Holy Ghost. I said, I, I need the book of Acts Holy Ghost. I mean, you know, we're talking about places where they kill Christians, where the name of Jesus is not known. So the Lord said, okay, fine. So I was back in Burma. And my first crusade, did the altar call? People were saved, and I'm going to pray for the sick. And for some reason, our workers had put all the sick people on one side. And they were kind of, you know, they were being taken past me. I don't know why it ended up being that way. And I was praying for people. And then I saw, looked out of the corner of my eye, there was a man wearing these striped hospital pajamas. And he looked like death itself. He was like a skeleton. And he, he, I mean, they, what I didn't know, he was terminally ill. They had brought him from the hospital. And there were three people propping him up because he couldn't stand. And there were two people with IV bottles with tubes running into his arms. And they were holding him up. And, and I said, dear Lord, what's wrong with this guy, you know? And then while I was praying for people, I see this guy. Suddenly he just slides down to the floor. And he lays spread eagled on his back with his eyes wide, wide open, his mouth wide open. And somebody there begins to shout in their language. And there was a group of doctors and nurses, I don't know, six, eight, or ten of them. They jumped from the seats, ran to this man, and they began to do stuff to him, you know. And they were doing things to him. And, uh, and for five, ten minutes, everybody was looking in that direction. I had stopped what I was doing, looking there. Then one of the doctors, he spoke English. Back in those days, very few people spoke English in Myanmar. He raises his voice and says to me, Pastor, he is dead. I said, are you sure? <laughs> yes, he's dead. I said, well, do something. Because my wife is an RN. And, you know, when I want to be romantic, I sit down with her and watch those medical shows on TV. And I know they do the massage, you know. And I can just do Pentecostal massage, you know. Shika, Baba, Shanda. And, and, but they do the heart massage. And I don't know, they do all these things. I said, do something. He said, Pastor, we have done everything we can. And he is dead. And they all got up and went back to their seat. And I had a dead man there. And I thought, my first thought was, okay, I'll pray for people here and, you know, distract attention away from there. Then after everything, the meeting is, is over and, you know, they'll get rid of the body. I don't know, you know. But one of the ushers, that fool, you know what he did? He, he took the body by the wrists and dragged him across the floor and placed him right in front of me. <laughs> and now I have to do something. And my first thought was, what do I do? Because at Rayma, they didn't teach us anything about raising the dead. Maybe they did when you were there, Pastor. They don't teach you. You had, yeah, read, you know, that's, you didn't graduate unless you raised from the, My year, they didn't teach us anything. We, I had no, I really had no idea what to do. I'd never seen anyone even attempt to raise someone from the dead. I never heard any teaching on how to raise the dead. I had never read a book on how to raise, from, raise someone from the dead. And uh, I'd never seen it ever being done except in the Bible. And I, I really was clueless. I didn't know what to do. And then I remembered 1984, 85, I was in India. There was this old English missionary, Harold Groves. He was like T.L. Osborne's mentor. 
And Brother Groves, if he was alive today, he'd be like 130 years old. He was 90 years old at that time. And he was, he, you know, he, he went to, he knew Wigglesworth and, you know, he went to Howard Carter's Bible School, graduated in 1926. I mean, he was from that breed. And I was staying in his house and I'll never forget his, his long, bony, skinny finger. He, he, he wagged his finger at me. He said, brother, when you don't know what to do, the Holy Ghost always knows. And I could see Brother Groves pointing his finger, you know, the Holy Ghost knows. So I said, okay, Brother Groves was right. I don't know what to do, but the Holy Ghost knows. So I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a fool of myself, but I'll do it loud and proud so everyone knows now the cat is out of the bag. I took the microphone to my mouth and this is what I said. I said, My interpreter said, what was that, Pastor? I said, I don't have the foggiest idea, but just stay with me. And so I began to speak in tongues because, you know, I didn't know what to do. So my thought was, I'm going to shout in tongues until something happens, as long as it takes. So I was, and nobody left. Everybody sat there staring at me. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do this thing. I don't care what people think of me. So I went, the longer I went, the bolder I got because nobody was leaving. I just shouted in tongues and I'm going to shout in tongues. And I went on. After about half an hour, I began to feel like a heat in my body. And this thought came to me, if you want to see miracles, you have to pray yourself out of the freezer into the furnace. You have to pray yourself out of a cold place to a hot place. You have to pray yourself out of death to life, out of sickness to health, out of defeat to victory. You have to pray yourself out. So I, be, I just went, and after about, I don't know how long, but I began to feel this heat rise up in my legs. And I felt, mm, God is fixing to do something. But I feel the fire of the Holy Ghost. And, and got warmer and warmer. He cast some decade. 45 minutes like this or more. I don't know. I wasn't even looking at my watch. And suddenly I hear a shout. Hallelujah. And I opened my eyes. It was the dead man. He had shot up from the floor. He was standing in front of me with his hands in the air. And he was speaking in tongues and praising God right next to me. You know. When that happened, I knew I got it. I knew, I knew. I have the bull by the horns. From there, we went all over the country. We held crusades. We didn't care what the government did. One time they came to, they told me, I came to the airport, you cannot preach. I said, well, you do. We're going to stop you. We're going to arrest you. I said, well, you have to do what you have to do. I have to do what I have to do. And that night, they came to arrest me, and the woman came up and testified. She said, Pastor, somebody had shot an arrow in my eye. I had an empty socket, and God created this eye. Look, I have a new eye. They saw that, they left, and never bothered me again. You know, in the subsequent years, we saw at least four people raised from the dead. We saw deformed children healed. We saw God open blind eyes. Lame people walked. Deaf ears heard. 
mute people spoke. Just all kinds of miracles, creative miracles in those years. And the best thing was that we planted 178 churches in places where the name of Jesus was not known. There were places you could go there and ask someone on the street, do you know who Jesus is? They said, who is he? Is he a sportsman? Is he a movie actor? Is he on TV? They didn't know. We planted 178 churches. You know what I learned through all that? Those years. One thing I did not learn. I still cannot teach you how to raise the dead. I can't write a book on it. I can't preach a sermon on it. I just prayed in the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost knows what to do. Until he showed up. So I can't teach anything on that. But one thing I learned. Actually there were several things I learned. The first thing was that Jesus Christ is still the same today. Let us not diminish him by lowering our expectations or by amending or changing the gospel message to suit man's unbelief. No. Never diminish the Holy One of Israel. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. He said, I am the Lord and I change not. That's the first thing that I learned from there. Jesus is still the same. Still the same. Still the Jesus of the Bible. The second thing I learned is that the Holy Ghost that fell on the day of Pentecost is still here today. It's not a diminished Holy Spirit. Who does different things? Who does easier things, more fun things? No, it's the same Holy Ghost. Same Holy Ghost. Whatever he was in the Bible, in the book of Acts, he's still the same today. Whatever you see Jesus and the Holy Ghost doing in the Gospels and the book of Acts, you can surely say he'll do the same things today. The third thing I learned is that the word of God is still true. When we preach the word of God, God still confirms his word with signs, wonders, and miracles. The word of God is still true. We don't need an alternative or an edited word of God. Amen. Never diminish him to fit into our patterns of unbelief or intellectualism. Amen? Hallelujah. And the fourth thing is that God can use anybody who makes himself available to us because really it's not about us or our ministry. It's about Jesus. Hallelujah. God will use anybody who makes it. You know, I, I remember when I was a new Christian and got baptized with the Holy Spirit, I used to look at men of God who were used by God and I thought, you know, these people must be perfect or they must have reached a certain level of holiness. And they used to say to me, you know, if you want God to use you to heal the sick, cast out devils, you have to reach a certain level of holiness. But I found out that's not true. 
Because I went to Burma, I saw dead people raised up. Then I looked at myself in the mirror and I couldn't understand how God could use someone like me. And God uses us not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. But it's really not about us. Really, it's about Jesus. It's about the Holy Ghost. It's about the Bible. It's about the fire of Pentecost. Those things. Those precious things. Hallelujah. That is why there are certain things we don't compromise. We don't back down from. Because those are the things we live by. Those are the things we stand on. Those are the things we preach. Those are the things when we preach, they change people's lives. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Let's bow our heads together. Thank you, Father. Well, heads are bowed, I, because I don't know most of you. I just want to make sure I do it right. And, and this is the most important thing. If there's anybody in this place, you say, Brother Christopher, I, I need to make things right with God. Or I need my sins forgiven. Or whatever, whichever way you put it. If that is the condition of your soul, you need to make things right with God. You need your sins forgiven. Anything of that sort. Let me see your hand right now. Because I really, really want to pray with you. Is there anybody in that condition? Maybe everyone here is doing good with God. And that's great. But if there's somebody, even if there's one person, you need to make things right with God. I really want to pray with you. Is there anybody in that condition? Need to get saved. Need your sins forgiven. So we'll make sure. Thank you, Father. Father, I thank you. Okay, let's all stand up. Let's, I will assume that everybody has peace with God. Let's lift up our hands to God. Let's lift up our hands to God and just talk to Jesus and just thank him. Thank him most of all. He says, you know, uh, Jesus said, he says, don't rejoice that, you're, uh, that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the first thing we should thank God for. Thank you, Jesus, that my name is written in your book. My name is written in your book of life. Thank you that my name is in that book and nobody can take that away. Nobody can erase my name from that book of life. And that is one thing that is iron, ironclad, 100% sure my name is written on the book. Unless, of course, I walk away from it, but I don't want to walk away from it. I want to serve him. I want to do it right. Hallelujah. 47 years I walked with him and I don't want to mess that up in the last few years I have left. I want to do it right. So I just say thank you Jesus. Let me uh, just give me the grace to continue to walk with you, to follow you, to seek your face and for you to do your work in my life. Father, I pray for uh, everybody in this place. First of all, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in the ministry are serving Lord let their latter years be more fruitful than their former years father let their latter years be fruitful father let them not diminish in strength in power in the anointing of your Holy Spirit on in faith but let them grow from strength to strength because all these years have been years of preparation father and I thank you that our best days are yet to come and father it is not true it's a lie when people say that we are set in a certain pattern and we'll stick with that the rest of our lives both for good and for evil that is when men speak in the natural but lord in christ jesus we are not set in any pattern but we go from glory to glory we go from faith to faith 
from strength to strength because we seek your face and you use us so that you are glorified. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. We thank you. Father, we thank you, we honor you, we glorify you, we bless your holy name, we thank you. We thank you, Father, we thank you, we thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. How many of you, you need prayer for something, some situation, you know, in your body, you want prayer for, let me see your hand. If you need prayer for healing or something, can you just come to the front? If you could just please come to the front so we can pray for you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Father, we bless your name. We glorify you. We thank you, Jesus, that when you were whipped and bruised, beaten, crucified, you bore upon your own self all of our diseases. You carried all of our pains and infirmities. And by your stripes, we have been healed. We thank you that it is done. And Lord, by faith we step into a finished work. Lord, I thank you. That's the wonderful thing that we step into something that is already done, already finished. We thank you. Amen. Now, I notice you said you introduced several pastors. And if you're a pastor, could you come forward and just let's spread out here. If you're a pastor, just come and. Please spread out in front. Right there, Pastor. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We thank you. Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you. Toko posonte lele kiria. Oroma tanke soki tante kili. Nega hasante ke. Let's everyone pray in the spirit. Nega hasonda. Nekila hasanto. Nekitanama Sandile, Nekichontolo Bosontiliki Danamadi, Tekiraba Sontolo Lobochin Dakari. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we honor you. Kidanamahande Kilaba has Sunday. End Hassa. Oh, not like in the morning, if you've got deafness in one or both ears, I want you right in the middle. Just asking, there's not a word of knowledge, but if anyone has deafness in one or both ears. There were three people who were healed. Yeah, you got deafness? Bigger button? I just don't hear very well. Okay, it's bad hearing, it's not deafness. Okay, you stay here. Anybody else? Okay, you can just come here. Okay, let's do this. Put your hand on the spot where your disease is, where your infirmity is. Just put your hand on that spot. Put your, please put your hand, if you come for prayer, Put your hand on the spot where your infirmity is. Father, we come to your presence in the name of your son, Jesus. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you were whipped and beaten and crucified, you bore upon your own self all of our diseases. You carried all our pains, and by your stripes, we have been healed. We have been healed. I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that it has been done. And Father, you said that whatsoever we shall ask you 
in the name of Jesus, it shall be done. So we come to your throne of grace. I ask you to send down the precious healing anointing of your Holy Spirit upon my brothers and sisters. I ask you to touch them right now by your mighty power. Father, heal them from every kind of sickness, disease, infirmity in their bodies. Lord, I pray for those who have uh, diseases, uh, internal things like diabetes, Father, or heart hypertension, high blood pressure, or uh, trouble with their heart or their kidneys or liver, Father, any part of their body, I ask you to touch them by your mighty power and heal them in the name of Jesus. Make them whole, make them whole right now. Father, I pray for those who have injuries in their bodies and trouble with their backs and their limbs, those who have arthritis. Uh, uh, Father, I ask you to touch them, heal them in the name of Jesus. Father, anybody who has any kind of paralysis or difficulties moving, walking, I ask you to let your life and virtue flow into their bodies in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I curse every spirit of infirmity. Heal them in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for people's eyes. Father, I ask you to heal their eyes in the name of Jesus. Every cataract and eye disease, I curse you in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ heals you now. Father, any kind of of disease in their bodies any 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 kind of disease or infirmity in their bodies touch them and heal them now in the name of Jesus of Nazareth the son of God now pastors please step up and begin to lay hands on them and pray for them in the name of Jesus thank you father thank you father thank you father just pray for them thank you father Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.